Hey guys, how's it going? John Mattis here of Off The Post. Thanks for listening, first of all. And secondly, we have Kyle Raftis, a young junior hockey executive on the show today. He is the general manager of the Sioux Greyhounds in the Ontario Hockey League. We're going to discuss a few things, uh, a lot of things actually, including his role as GM. What exactly does that entail? Um, How did he get this job? And what he thinks of the CHL import draft? What he thinks of analytics at the junior hockey level? All kinds of goodies. Uh, Kyle was gracious with his time. Got about an hour for you here. And uh, also just a reminder, please uh, rate, review, subscribe to Off The Post on iTunes it's simple. Just go to the uh, podcast app on your iPhone and type in Off the Post. You'll find us there. Uh, and lastly, uh, follow me on Twitter at uh, Mattis John, M A T I S Z John. And uh, without further ado, let's get after it. From the center of the hockey universe, this is the Off the Post podcast. So, Kyle, Raftis, general manager of the Sioux Greyhounds. How's it going? Excellent. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming into uh, the podcasting closet here at Post Media. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's real high tech. (laughs) Um, So I wanted to have you in today to talk about a few things. But first, I want to uh, talk about your past and uh, your reality TV stardom. Uh, You you were on Making the Cut, uh, I think it was on Global like a decade ago. What was that experience like? Very brief, uh, to put it lightly, it was kind of a, a, a weird opportunity that came to me and a few guys that I was playing with in Peterborough at the time, and uh, it was an all-inclusive trip out to Western Ontario, or Western Canada, and it was, as I said, a very brief, it was an interesting experience, but uh, it didn't last too long, as you can probably tell by the show, but I don't think it was very heavily watched as the first, uh, the first season. It didn't break any like viewing records? Not that I'm aware of, no. <laughs> so what, the, ba- the base of the show, to my knowledge, like I did like a brief, you know, YouTube uh, research session on it, is that they grabbed a bunch of guys who were sort of uh, pros or, you know, want to be pros and said, hey, you come out for this reality TV show, uh, get on camera a bunch, and there's going to be, you know, Mike Keen in there, a few other big name hockey people and the winners go to an NHL trial. Was that, am I reading that correctly? Exactly. They kind of pitch it as a, you know, you're going to come out, great this, get this great development, a couple weeks out West. Um, there's going to be tons of people watching it. It's going to be something that you're going to bring out some minor pro guys, guys playing in the, you know, CIS, the three guys that I went out with were going into our overage year and the, the OHL. So it was kind of just a mixed bag of different players. And I, I think it was something that, you think you're 20 years old, like, sure, I'll try it. But it, it was a little bit different than you think out there. But, uh, yeah, definitely. I, uh, that was my, my brief stint in the reality TV, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if you have an IMDb page, but maybe you should. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I don't know. I think you have to make it more than uh, one or two episodes to get to that point. But Well, you gave up on that, obviously, um, the, the TV part. But you played nine games in, was it the United Hockey League? Yeah, just after uh, my 19-year-old year. Um, with Peterborough, we just kind of played a little bit of minor pro just to get a little bit of a feel for it. It was kind of a situation that came again, playing with former guys. They just needed someone to come in for the playoffs and it was a good opportunity to, you didn't need to to sit out too much to get into it. It's not going to affect, you know, CIS down the road. So it was just cool opportunity to play a little bit more, extend the year, play a little bit more hockey. So you, well, you can also say you're, you were a pro hockey player. You weren't just an OHLer because you, you were a second round OHL pick and then 
uh, you played over 300 games, which isn't easy in, you know, in junior hockey. That's, that's, that's a fair amount of time on the ice. And you're with the Generals, the Peets, and the Frontenacs. Is, is there one team that you sort of call yourself an alum of more than the others? I think whenever I look back at it, I always look at, at Peterborough being kind of where I spent my most time. It was where I played my most amount of games. And I think it was very brief stops at the start for Moshua to Kingston. And then when I finally got into Peterborough, it was a little bit where I can kind of found that experience of what I was looking for and, you know, was able to play my game. We were obviously a good team winning it in 06 and being able to play in Memorial Cup. And, you know, we had a strong group and it was something that I was always proud of. And I think it was something where I kind of felt comfortable at a certain point. Sometimes, it, you know, you, you don't enjoy getting traded a ton of times, but at the same time, it, I think it happened for a reason. It was really good to, to finish off my junior career there. Well, you went to the Memorial Cup in 2006. I was just starting university, so I wasn't really plugged into the OHL. What type of player were you? I was um, like a puck moving defenseman, kind of offensively driven. Um, somebody that you know, I, I was always you know took a lot of pride in my skating ability and first pass out of our zone and and could try to take care of my own end at the same time. But it was more so kind of on the offensive side of the puck. And then you go to Dal. Was that was that more to play hockey or to get your business degree? Because going to CIS, some players. You know, they're more driven by maybe maybe keeping the dream alive a little bit and, you know, school secondary or a lot of guys, it's also flipped. I think for me, looking at it, um, you have a few pro opportunities, um, nothing out of the NHL level. And I think you kind of look at it in two different ways of I want to still play hockey, but I don't want to just put everything aside for kind of a minor pro career that nothing against that. But I thought that would always be there for me when I was done university. And I think with looking at my OHL package that I had at the time for going to school and I got a really great opportunity to play at Dow and play a lot of minutes right away and with some bursaries and things along those lines it was it got a lot tougher to turn down and kind of committed there late in that August and and started there in September. Dow's a really good school too and you know you go across the country to Halifax kind of a new a new environment new city good party city like it's it's a lot of it, to my knowledge, is based around St. Mary's and, and Dallas, sort of the downtown core and, and how it operates. Yeah, definitely. It's something I'd never even been out there. And you kind of go out for these recruitment trips. And I was blown away when you you kind of, it's sad, but when you're you're just playing junior, you're not really looking at any school rosters. Yeah. You don't really pay attention to it. And then you start looking at rosters and you see all these players that, you know, it, it's, it's excellent hockey. And I, I didn't really even realize until I started playing out there, as dumb as that might sound. And I think when you, you get to see a city like Halifax, you're going to get a good degree at Dalhousie, which I was excited about. And you get to play high-level hockey for another few years, which is kind of a, a bonus on top of all of it. So I think it's it's one of those things that it's everyone calls it a hidden gem, CIS hockey, because, of course, you lose those elite, elite players that, have, you know, that are taking pro steps and getting their NHL contracts that have you know, the OHL and major junior, but there's a lot of players there that come out of there now with great opportunities. And, you know, when you can put a degree in your back pocket, come out with very little debt to no debt and, you know, see, meet another great group of people and live in Halifax for a few years. It was kind of, uh, it got really hard to turn down. Sounds like a great deal to me. Um, so you go from OHL player to a very brief stint in the minors to Dow. And then I believe your next step was was to the OHL offices, and you were a director of player recruitment, educational services, and I think there's something else on your title there. How was that experience? And was it direct from Dow? Yeah, it was direct. It was kind of a. It's interesting how it all comes together. Um, I find I don't know how a lot of guys view it, but when you're kind of making that transition to CIS from the OHL, for me personally, it was a little bit of 
not to say there was some bitterness, but you were kind of get you got it very academically focused, and you kind of weren't sure how hockey. You kind of always constantly reflect on your own career. And for me, I always loved hockey. I wanted to be a part of it, but just you go through it and you kind of question a lot of things. And for me, it was just kind of you know that mystery of the game behind the game and understanding kind of how it all works. Even though you play, as you, as you mentioned, a few years, I played five years in the OHL as a player. There's so much of it you don't understand the process of it behind it. And when um, the position opened up at the league office, it was kind of a, you know, I didn't know a ton about the position. It was fairly new. It kind of got was developed while I was at school. It didn't exist previously. And it was just something for me that you could really get a lot of learning. Obviously, you're going to be in the same office as Dave Branch and nobody knows you know, more about junior hockey than him. And obviously he's such a progressive leader and what he's done in hockey. And the more I kind of learned about the position, the more I just thought, you know what, like this is a little bit of everything. It wasn't necessarily, you know, one aspect of the game. And I think when a lot of people think about, am I going to work in hockey? They think, well, I got to be a coach. I got to be, you know, in the gym side of things. Right. I got to be on the ice. Yeah. Whereas this current avid game. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, like you said, a lot of guys maybe go straight to teams like, I don't know, Junior A, their assistant coach, or, or their coaching minor midget. Um, but some guys, if you go to the league, so even if it's, you know, OHL Central Scouting, NHL Central Scouting, you're opening up your contact list to all these people that, you know, you have to deal with. Not not only are you bumping into them in the rink, but like, you know, you may have a conference call with, with so-and-so, or, you know, you're talking about this player with, with this team because you're, you're Central Scouting, they want to know more about him. Like, I think that's an interesting way to sort of funnel yourself uh, into better opportunities. And especially with, with that role, with the, the recruitment and education, like, you were obviously, you were talking to agents a lot, I would imagine, families, players, like, you're casting a pretty wide net. Yeah, definitely. I think it was it was almost one of those situations where I didn't even realize what I was getting into in terms of that net, as you talked about. I think it's something that when you're dealing, you know, you know, in-depthly every high-end player that's coming into the league, you're also looked at not really threatening by the other teams. So you right. really get to learn from a lot of people as opposed to when you, you work for one team, you know, people always talk at, at, at arenas, you know, who's a good scout, who's not. But yeah. nobody really shares information or they <laughs> yeah. shouldn't be anyways. And I think when you're working at the league level, you get to pick a lot of guys' brains because they know it's not like you're going to use it against them or anything. You're just trying to gather some information for yourself. And I, I sat in on, you know, different teams, draft meetings, um, different things like that, that, you know, you get an invite to and just to kind of pick their brain on different players. And you got to see over those three years, the progression of players that you saw at minor midget take their 16-year-old year in the league, 17-year-old year, and just kind of as they progress. And obviously when you build that relationship in an early spot, it, it's something that, you know, you can kind of build on and kind of you follow them along. So it was kind of an interesting way for me to, after going through the cycle of junior hockey myself, to kind of see it again firsthand. Because when you go to school, you kind of lose track and you get old quickly. Yeah. As we all joke in junior <laughs> hockey, because you know that those four years or five years in my in my uh, personal experience go by pretty quickly. So yeah. it was kind of a really cool introduction from just how a young player comes into this league and, and takes that next step as well. So you go from sort of this non-threatening guy in the league office to being hired by the Sioux, and you were hired after Kyle Dubas uh, as the general manager there. And you're are you twenty? You're twenty-seven then, correct? Yeah, just and yeah, you you guys are right around the same age. You're thirty-one now, but if we go back to to when you first started, how difficult was it to, or maybe it wasn't difficult, uh, 
to be you know introduced to the league and although i think there's been a lot of turnover lately i think if we think back four years ago there was a lot of the same guys that have been around for a long time in terms of general managers coaches did you find the first year especially hard to be like hey i'm the new guy i'm also young please trust me like when i call you for a trade let's you know give me the time of day like what was that sort of uh, learning curve like it was it's one of those things I, I think looking back on it, I didn't have a ton of time to prepare. Um, I was just hired really just before training camps, which is significantly late. Obviously. Thanks, Kyle Dubas, because he, he just left. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for both ways, obviously getting a great yeah. opportunity when he's moving on. But there wasn't a ton of time to, to overthink anything, which I think is kind of a, a blessing and a curse because it's not something that you can sit back and really plan out. You just kind of had to hit the ground running. And uh, I think... If you would have asked me two years previously or even, you know, six months previously, I don't think I would have ever thought I would have been in Sault Ste. Marie in that position. But the more I learned about the position, the synergy through the organization from the ownership to management to the coaching staff to scouts, it's just I, I just really felt like it was going to be a perfect fit and something, a situation that I was going to really enjoy it. That first year was a whirlwind. Um, obviously, we had a, a strong team, and you know, picking up the phone and, and talking to guys that had previously traded me as a player was always a <laughs> that's funny an interesting side of it. Um, but at the same time, it, there's a learning curve for sure with it. Um, you always kind of look back and wish you knew more at that time. But uh, it was something that you just you know just keep on pushing on. And I had a lot of great people around me that I could pick their brains of it as well and kind of you know navigate through that first year, which is I think it's tough for anyone to get in that situation and it's a small staff in the Sioux so there's not a ton of people around but at the same time you develop so much quicker because you're forced to there's no there's no one else that you can kind of delegate to so it's kind of two-sided I really enjoyed it it was a lot of fun that year um, but at the same time yeah it's, it's a major adjustment for sure especially with not having worked with a team previously. And how did you find uh, the community or just I guess also the league uh, in, in terms of you replacing Dubas because in the Sioux, you know, he grew up with the team. He, you know, right. worked in many capacities since he was like 12 as a stick boy, as, as the story goes. He leaves, and right, he's from he's from the Sioux. He leaves to, you know, to the show, to the to the Toronto Maple Leafs assistant GM. Like, it, big shoes to fill, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at, uh, especially as, as a rookie coming in, a uh, rookie to the organization, rookie to being a GM. Uh, was, were there a lot of days where you go... Oh, I didn't know this is how the things worked, uh, you know, in the OHL in terms of, I don't know, trades, signings, whatever. Or do you think your job previously gave you a pretty, pretty good uh, edge? Definitely the the job I had previously gave me a huge edge because obviously understanding whether it's the player agreements. I knew basically outside of the overage class, I knew every kid in the league from having been on the league side of it and seeing them come through their draft year. So it wasn't necessarily like I had to form an opinion at the same time or, you know, or I didn't have a small sample size to kind of evaluate talent. So on that side of it, it was, it was a great side of it. And obviously when you're at the league side, you, you kind of, you have a good understanding of the different programs that they're running. And it wasn't something that I had to kind of learn on the fly. But with saying that, I think it's, there's no easy general manager position to go into. I think a lot of people think if your team's strong that, hey, it's, it's going to be easy. Cause, but I think when the situation that we were in, the expectations were that much higher. It wasn't a year where you could just say, ah, the team's going to be young. Let's let it grow. And as we always kind of you joke that some teams are two years away always. They're always, it's not going to be this year. Yeah. Whereas that year, I always look at teams that the core of the team is really what's going to dictate your 
your direction. And I think with that team, the, the core was a very old team, really strong group. And it was going to be the following year, we were going to be young regardless. So it was a, it was a tough year in, in, a, in the side of things that you didn't want to be the guy that stepped in the way of something. Right. But at the same time, you want to, you didn't want to just out of pure ego, put your stamp on it either. You know, you want to make sure that you're doing things for the right reasons. And I think trying to get that grasp of it as quickly as I could was the biggest challenge, I think, on that side of it. And you're a guy coming from, like, you're a Toronto guy. You go to the Sioux, which is very far away, very north. Uh, I've been to Sudbury a bunch, and I think it's great in the summer, but in the winter, it's a different story. How did you find living in the Sioux as, I mean, I guess you had traveled around, you know, as an OHL player, and you had seen it, but it's a whole different story when you're actually living there, working there, and, you know, a big part of the community, because they love their greyhounds there, too. Yeah, they do love their greyhounds. They're very passionate about it. Um, I think... People tell you about how it is and the expectations that are on the Greyhounds. They're a proud community about what their team is like, how their team's playing. Um, they're not shy to give you an opinion of it, which is good. <laughs> Do you have any good stories um, where you're like in a coffee shop and some guy like presses you against the wall and is like, you better trade for this guy? Yeah, there's nothing <laughs> seems to be off limits on, in terms of that. But no, everybody's usually supportive with it. It's, it. There's not too many people that have come up negatively. It's more so of curiosity. And I, I always laugh because it's always great when people ask you, what are we going to do in this situation? Or what are we thinking? Because yeah. they're a part of it and they're invested with it. So it's, it's always awesome on that side of it. But I think making the change up to there... You know, when you look around the league and myself having worked at the league, I think you get a good feel of, you know, the organization as a whole. So for me, it's never about locations. It's never about, you know, what this team's done in the past. It's just about the people that are going to be there, the autonomy that they were going to give me, um, and just who I could learn from as well. Because I think a lot of people put too much stress into, you know, logistically how this team's going to play. And that's that's the least of the worry. The, the bigger concern is... Was I going to be able to develop professionally? Am I able to kind of have a group around me that's going to challenge me? And, and am I going to have fun at work every day? And I can say it for every year, every day I've been there, there's, some days are tougher than others, but it's been a blast and it's been a real fun group to work with. And it's a, it really makes it easy in terms of that transition. Yeah, I think anyone who works in hockey is, is going to say even the bad days aren't so bad. It's like this feels like work, but tomorrow maybe it, it'll feel like, you know, I've never you know, uh, worked a minute in, in my life. You know what I mean? It's sort of the bad days aren't so bad. Definitely. And I think whenever I've been lucky enough, I've had a, a few different coaches work with me and different scouts, but every person that I've worked with that I can say it, there wasn't one issue putting in the hours. It's almost one of those situations where the clock moves faster than you even realize it. And you've run out of time on that particular day, just cause you're having fun in that environment and you're challenging each other. And it's something that, you know, for, just to say you work in hockey is a great thing, but when you can work in hockey and truly enjoy it and have a chance to put an imprint on it, it's even better. So 2014-15 season, that's your first one in the Sioux. You're taking over for Kyle Dubas. Uh, Sheldon Keefe, who's now with the Marlies, with the Maple Leafs organization, uh, he's your coach then, very you know highly respected, doing a great job. You guys have a 54-12-0-2 record by the end of the season, so... You know, you have the best. You have the best record in in the league. Like that's that makes you look good, makes Sheldon look good. Um, but it wasn't necessarily something that that came easily because you made a couple trades. Uh, three that stick out: Anthony D'Angelo, you got from Sarnia, uh, Nick Ritchie from Peterborough, and Justin Bailey from Kitchener. If you look back, you know now you're you're going to enter your fourth season. If you look back on those first, you know, three trades or big trades, did you know what you were doing? <laughs> 
I, I think it was better that I know what I was doing. I don't think I you ever really know what you're doing <laughs> when you look back three years. Yeah. I think you, you're always kind of, it's interesting how those things kind of came together. I think looking back at it now, if I knowing what I know now, um, I think I, I should have been more stressed about it because I think I just had this vision of what we were going to do. Um, it didn't all play out per se of what we we're going to acquire at the trade deadline, but understanding that our core majority of it was going to be graduating and we had a real strong group and obviously you know with Darnell Nurse getting returned from Edmonton was a big changer for us I think we had a strong team but when we got him back I didn't think there was a lot of people in the league um, on the ice that could do what he could do but off the ice more importantly he was such a leader and such a like there was just so much energy around him with our team and what he could do and I think when we pulled those those three deals off and they were all kind of within 72 hours which was the, the craziest part to it it really changed the dynamic of our team and we ended up kind of going on a crazy run where we only lost two games after the trade deadline so it was a really a, a year that you could learn from because we had so many elite players and just to watch Sheldon Keefe working with these guys from from then on from September to that point it gave me a lot of confidence that he'd be able to pull the group together and and it was it was a it was a fun year especially it was a lot of as we joked it was nice hockey to watch it was a lot of fun yeah if, if you look back on that roster and what you had after the trade deadline. So I mentioned D'Angelo. He's an NHL player, or at least uh, AHL. Nick Ritchie, Justin Bailey, Sergei Tolchinsky with with the Hurricanes, Jared McCann with Florida, Blake Spears, Devils pick. He's young at this point, but nevertheless, uh, like you mentioned, Darnell Nurse, who was uh, an absolute force in the UHL, um, and then Halverson, decent goalie. Like you guys had a pretty stacked team, and then you run into Mr. Uh, Connor McDavid in the conference finals, and I don't exactly remember how it went down off the top of my head, but it was uh, obviously not the ending you wanted. No, definitely. I think, like, as we we talked a little bit off Mike earlier, I, I think every year there's those dominant teams in the Western Conference, and I think that particular year it was really between us and Erie, and I think if you if you scroll back and you look at the trade deadline, it was a little bit of an arms race, which... I don't think we were just adding just to add. I thought those players were going to probably turn us over, put us over the top because obviously there's a player named Connor McDavid, which we were never going to be able to acquire one for one. <laughs> but I thought if we could kind of yeah. surround our current group with that, um, we'd give them a good run for their money, but ended up us losing in six games. And I think Connor McDavid was just, he, he took it to another level. Like I, I never, he was excellent that entire year uh, for Erie, but in that series, it was just, Every time he had the puck, he just, it was scary how, you know, what he could do with it and just the level of play that he could bring everybody along with him at. And they had a good team too, not to put anybody down around him because, you know, Dylan Strom was on yeah. the team and a lot of strong guys. But it's something that, you know, that was a tough one for us because there was so much winning the regular season, um, setting a franchise record in points. There was a lot of, you know, great energy within the city and the community to kind of build into that series. But, I guess when you can look back on losing to Connor McDavid, it's not exactly the worst the worst problem, but it still stinks. Yeah, I think what people maybe who don't follow the OHL realize is that he was, as much as he's such a thrill to watch in the NHL, he was just absolutely dominant at the at the OHL level in terms of he had the puck on his on his stick maybe at uh, you know Erie's uh, face off dot in the defensive end and he's gone and. Two seconds later, he's got a shot on net, or he's fed someone in front. Like his his speed, as much as he's elite now at the NHL level, super elite, I'd say. OHL it was it was a whole nother story where he had like four gears ahead of everyone else. 
That that's always the scariest part, just that speed, because you see what he can do with players now in the NHL level, and has them, you know, the way he can kind of control defenders' feet and has them guessing it. And these are NHL players, you know, not to mention guys in junior that he was playing against. But as I said, we had an elite group, and just this, and we had a fast team, a team with a lot of speed. That's kind of been our mo over the last few years. That speed and skill, he definitely has that in spades, and it's something that, you know, as a spectator, sometimes you caught yourself. You know, obviously, I have rooting interest with the Greyhounds, but sometimes you just be watching him because you such just every time he was on the ice, you would just watch him uh, take it to another level. And every time we played him, he just continued to get better. It didn't matter if guys were physical against him. And he's got it's not so much just his speed, but it's just the decision making with a puck while he's at that high level of speed, which is there's nobody that I've seen in the OHL since, obviously, that could do it at that level. And it's something that when you're playing against, it can be very scary. I think he's a, a mulligan for everyone in hockey. Even except for maybe when you're playing against him, you're allowed to be a fan of of McDavid and and just watch him in in awe in terms of the different. Like I go back to gears, just the different ways that he can use his speed, and he never loses his touch as as a stick handler or a passer or even a shooter. Like it's just, it doesn't matter how he's accelerating or how fast he's going. It's still the same. The brain is always like connected to the feet, right? Whereas a lot of other players, um, like Andreas Athanasiu is a, is a good player. He's going to be an even better NHL player as his career goes on. But when he was in the OHL, at least 16, 17-year-old, he was he was one of the fastest players in the league, but his, just his hands weren't catching up. And, you know, they have now. But with McDavid, it, it's been from the start where he's just always been – you know, processing things so much faster than everyone else. I think that goes back to there's lots of players that can skate fast, but when a player can play fast and not take a step off, that's that's the the scary part because just the way some players can just the name of the game now is controlling space. And yeah. when you have speed like that, that you can back off defenders and create space, and um, you know when you're entering zones at that type of speed, and you can add layers to your attack. It's always just it's. it's interesting to watch and it's it's on top of being exciting it's very tough to defend and i think that's something that that's the difference between there's always a lot of hype in terms of being a fast skater or playing with speed but when you can be a player that can make those high creative decision making at that same speed it's just it's very tough to match up against if we can go back to your trades your your best one might be bobby mcintyre for a ninth round pick uh for those who don't know uh, McIntyre signed an AHL contract recently. He was with you guys for two years. Um, definitely a late bloomer and a guy who maybe was buried a bit on uh, the Mississauga Steelheads. You go and acquire him, and I'm assuming you you guys, you know, really targeted him, really saw something that wasn't being used because in two seasons with the Greyhounds, he had over 100 points combined, and he was one of your best players last year. What was that conversation like in terms of acquiring him? Was it difficult or was his stock so low that ninth ninth round pick wasn't really that that unreasonable? Well, I think it just, you know, coming out of the year we had with the large graduation, it was we were bringing in a lot of younger players. And I think when we were kind of looking around the league, it was a good opportunity for somebody that we had used a lot of draft picks pre- the year previous to acquire the in those three big deals. So we didn't have a ton of picks that we could use for kind of a high end player, but there was something there with a group of guys that we always try and target over a summer of guys that, you know, in, in terms of the OHL, you see a lot of times you, you're bringing in your 16 and 17 year olds 
you're hoping everybody moves up throughout the lineup, but sometimes there's guys that, you know, whether it's just situationally coming off a bad year or whatever it may be, aren't moving up the, the lineup and, you know, teams need to create space for it. So I think with Bobby, you know, in terms of watching him, he'd always been a great um, point producer at a young age. Uh, when he came into the league, it was kind of a little bit more of a defensive-minded system, and he was kind of put in a role where he didn't have the puck on a stick a ton. It was a little bit more of a, a dump-and-chase setting, and I think when you're looking at a player that's being that's coming into his 19-year-old year in, in the OHL, if they can think the game at a high level and they have that skill set, they're now playing against either their age group or lower. And I think when you're looking at a player like that, I knew Bobby a little bit from going through the recruitment process. I knew he was a highly motivated individual, and I think it was something that we were really rolling the dice because I know it's always these trades tend to evolve. I think right. almost, I don't think there's too much attention paid to that on that, that given day, but yeah. I think knowing the opportunity he was going to get and just being a player that, hey, with a little bit of confidence, he's already got those tools, so let's see what we got here. And I think I'll give Bobby a ton of credit in the coaching staff because he came in, he had the opportunity. It didn't mean it was guaranteed to him for long, and he took it and really ran with it right from day one. And I think just building up that confidence and, and playing in the system that we had running there it was just something that tend, it kind of snowballed on him the right way. And sometimes I can go the other way on a player, but I think Bobby had a great year. He led us in playoff scoring that season and it was something that he it, it kind of dangled a carrot for him that you know what he is that player that he can believe in himself at that level so it was kind of a cool story on that side of it it's great that he signed an american league contract and just talking to him about it, he's excited about it and he's ready to prove people wrong, or sorry prove people wrong again yeah well he's definitely come a long way like he was obviously off of every nhl ahl team's radar until really came to the suit and you guys gave him an opportunity so uh, it kind of works both ways. You guys, you guys give him the opportunity, and he seizes it. And a lot of times, it's about that. And even if you relate it to coaching, so Sheldon, Sheldon Keefe leaves to the Marlies. You guys hire Drew Bannister. I wouldn't be completely surprised, and you're probably in the in the same boat that you know he might get scooped up eventually by AHL, NHL. It's just the way it goes when you succeed at a lower level. The OHL is a development league in a lot of ways for players for managers for coaches for whatever and uh and i guess it's sort of a catch-22 as as a guy in your shoes who's running the show you want to see you guys succeed but then you always have to you know replace the, these important people when they leave right now i think it's you're caught both ways obviously it's a lot easier with stability in terms of you know building it year after year you don't have to worry about how people are going to blend because it's easy to say i'm going to hire two different assistant coaches a, a head coach and we're going to hit the ground running, but it's different when you, you take your kind of hockey hat off and just think about the people on yeah. top of that. But I've always thought, and this is just my experience since I've been there, it's a lot easier to replace someone when they're going on to something, you know, that they're excited yeah. about. And yeah. For us, we've gone through three goalie coaches and it sounds, as I joked, like, well, the management there must be, you know, tough to work with, <laughs> but each one of them has got an NHL co- you know, coaching job right. out of it. And it's something that when you are seeing guys no different than players, when players are moving on to great things, it's a lot easier to recruit that next group of players. And I think when coaches or scouts or anyone that's working in the organization are seeing people taking that next step, it's a lot easier to, to replace them on that side of it. And there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm when they step into it. And for, for us in the Sioux, it's, you know, I'll give full credit to the ownership group. They're a very progressive minded group and they want people that come in and, and make an impact. And if there's an opportunity that somebody's really excited about taking and they feel like they need to do it, then they're all, they're fully supportive of it. And I think it, as I said, I think it really sets it up to, you know, attract that next great individual. 
Well, and speaking of signings, uh, Morgan Frost got <clears throat> signed recently by the Flyers, and he's not going anywhere, presumably, next season. Uh, I guess we'll see, but he got drafted this summer. Um, Flyers obviously like what they see because he was a late first-rounder, and, you know, those guys sometimes don't get signed right away. So, good for him. Um what, what do you think of him as a player, and what do you think of uh, Andy Frost, his famous dad, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs' former uh, PA announcer, being being involved in the team in some respect? I mean, he's, to my knowledge, he's not an overbearing dad, but, you know, you got Morgan and you've got Andy, two uh, interesting individuals. No, Andy's definitely uh, enthusiastic about hockey. He's, he's, he's been in an arena uh, for, for many years, and I think Morgan tells great stories about just, you know, tagging along with his, his dad at Maple Leaf games, and... I think with uh, Andy, it was just something that, as much as he's in hockey, I think the junior side of it, he, he didn't really know a ton about going right. through it. And he's been, obviously, a big supporter of us in the Sioux. And it's funny, with Morgan was the uh, last pick of the fourth round in his draft year for us. And he was always a tons of creativity, tons of speed, tons of skill, a little bit of a slighter build to him. And he's a player that, whenever you, you talk about a trickle-down effect or trickle-up, I guess, you know, Jared McCann sticks with Vancouver, yeah. and Morgan Frost was. Was he a 16-year-old then? He was a 16-year-old yeah. that year. The plan really was probably he wasn't going to start the year with us just wow. because of, you know, he, he was going to go back and play Tier 2. But with Jared kind of making the Vancouver Canucks as an underage, it's funny who the next person, not to say Morgan was coming in to replace him, but it was it was a, kind of a trickle-up effect. Right. And it's funny now looking back on it that they're both first-round NHL picks, but it's something that Morgan's you know, different than Bobby McIntyre, as we talked about, got a great opportunity, made the most of it, and just had that elite sense to himself that he came in at 16 years old and he was you know, a little bit undersized. I think a lot of people kind of didn't really have the, the, a ton of respect for his game, and it's no slight against Morgan, but just he didn't come in with a ton of hype, and you could just see that IQ elite just develop, and it was one of those players that... You could see it just every day the decision-making was getting better. The skating, there was more confidence in his game. And he obviously translated into a great year last year and being taken in the first round by Philadelphia. And him signing early is a great um, sign of what they think of his ability, just coming out of development camp. But, no, he's, he's somebody that you know we were excited to get originally. And just to see his growth, it's, it's jumped a lot faster than even I thought. And usually I get... You're looking at guys kind of trying to guesstimate where they're going to be yeah. down the road, but he's he's jumped that leaps and bounds, so we're excited to see where it can go from here on. The junior hockey drafts are so difficult. I don't know how they do it in the Western Hockey League with their Bantam draft because the minor midget draft in, in Ontario and in the queue, like, obviously there's, there's you know, the Connor McDavid's, um, the Aaron Eckblad's, all those sort of guys who you know is are just going to be pros. They're going to be great pros. They would have to have a serious, you know, health scare for it to derail their careers. But then after that, even even the really good minor midget players, some of them don't pan out. Um, a lot of guys are overlooked for height, which is fair to some extent, and and is being corrected to to another degree since the the league and and hockey in general doesn't care about size as much as they used to. But man, there's some eighth round picks, fifteenth round picks, or even undrafted OHLers that have gone and do great things, and somehow. They, they just fly under the radar, and, and I guess a lot of it might be just the fact that they're 15 when they're being drafted. I don't know. Yeah, I, it's it's always an interesting question because I, I think it's even some guys I joke with that have become NHL scouts now. When they're watching an OHL game, they're watching everybody, but they're really watching the draft eligible. Yeah. Whereas when we're going through our OHL draft year, you're watching every kid on the ice, and you're trying to get a gauge of them. But I think the biggest side of 
the junior game that goes understated is the development side of it to scouting because I think you can't separate the two because as you know draft picks are made everyone wants to declare a winner or loser and that even happens in our league but at the same time when you see the development side of it and what you can kind of put into it and we've done a good job I think on our side of it of working with our prospects and I think when you see that development take off on somebody, it obviously elevates that pick. It's yeah. not to say that they weren't picked in the right spot or wrong spot at that particular time, but it's easy to look back three years later and say, oh, that was a great pick in that spot. At the time... You're sort of just guessing in a lot of ways. You're guessing, but at the same time, you're, you're trying to gauge, maybe he's an undersized player, but for me, if you can really articulate in terms of what this player needs to work on you can help on that development side of it and that's the big not to say it works with every player but sometimes you might see that boy versus a man argument that the kid's 15 years old he's 6'3 he's 220 pounds he looks great coming off the bus but now he has to in exhibition find his way against players that are the same size but he's never had to leverage his body he's never played you know had to think the game but sometimes that smaller players always played at that size and he's always played against bigger players and maybe he can evolve his game because that's the biggest thing at, at the junior level and we don't try and gauge the Sioux Greyhounds draft versus the league we just try yeah. and make sure that we're drafting players that can play for the Sioux Greyhounds and we've you know had a little bit of success over the last few years in terms of finding that but at mm-hmm. the same time it's we have what we know we can work with and then we can kind of develop that to where we need it to be and I think that's what sometimes makes the draft look better down the road type thing. It's always the best though when it's a few days before the draft, the league sends out, hey, here's, you know, every team's picks. And you look at the second round and it's just jambled. There's, you know, there's a pick set of traded hands three times. There's, it's very rare to see a pick just stay there. Uh, like say, say if it was the Sioux Greyhounds were supposed to pick second round, you know, fourth pick in the second round. The chances of you guys still having that are pretty rare these days. Like, what has happened to the second round picks? Because um, for me, for people that maybe don't follow the OHL closely, if there's a major trade, so Logan Stanley uh, gets traded the other day. Um, lots of picks involved. He's an NHL prospect, very good player. We'll see if he comes back to the O. But um, there's many seconds involved, including uh, two in 2023 and one in 2024 so these guys these hypothetical hockey players um are i don't even know if i can do the math off the top of my head but they're 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 not even on the radar of 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 ohl teams they're still you know playing peewee or or maybe even below that like it's it's become sort of a running joke around the league that second round picks are just thrown out there so far in advance that they've lost their sort of currency. Do you do you know how to like how how do you explain what's going on with second round picks? Well, yeah, it's it's sometimes it's, it can be crazy when you're kind of looking at a transaction. I, I and think, I, I should know too that you can't trade first round picks, so that maybe puts more sort of emphasis on the second round. So sorry, continue. Yeah, definitely, it's the highest pick you can trade, so it's kind of become you know the the, the big commodity, and I think. Over the last few years, um, you've, you've started to see a lot a lot less young players movement. So on, on the side of it, it's a, it's a good thing that you're not seeing as many players traded away individually. I think a lot of times when you see those bigger trades with multiple seconds from years out, it's kind of a player that might be playing in a weaker program. He's going to go to a, a stronger program at the deadline, extend his year, extend his development. And, you know, you can kind of see some benefit on that side of it. But I think in terms of when you're trying to necessitate value and trying to understand it 
it, it's tough to understand because obviously I'm always a big believer the farther you go out with the pick, the least valuable it is because as you stated, you can kind of move it around a few times. But it's a way of kind of being a placeholder that you are getting that asset in terms of the draft pick, but at the same time, you're not depreciating your team on it on that given day because the the teams change so much year to year and there's so many um, differences in terms of, you know, from one April to the September with your team and the graduation on that side of it. So I think in terms of when you're assessing those trades, I think it's a way of, you know, teams making sure that they are getting value back for that particular player, but at the same time, not, you know, giving up too much off their current roster, which is, you know, it's hard to define. It's hard to kind of, talk about i think a lot of people call them kind of placeholders it's right. a little bit something that you but there's also that other theory that you know you'll be able to re you know regain that pick when you're ready to make that selection so it's something that's become the currency in the league uh, on the positive side it's great that you don't have to move young players that you've yeah. brought into your program and or just them out of high school so or the player in general like let's say 17 he's moving like it's i think it's probably better for the league in general if the veterans are moving or the the key players that are gonna you know put team X over the hump at the trade deadline, as opposed to just you know a guy goes to a team, he has one year there, and all of a sudden he's flipped across the province, and he's got to move and get new billets. And I think from a player perspective, it's probably a good thing that these are either these are draft picks; they're not real things uh, in terms of people yet. Right, and that's the thing too. I think every a lot of people don't realize that every player enrolled in high school in the OHL has a no trade clause, so it's not as if you just get pulled into the office and told where you're going. Like, right. you know, years ago, there'd be the high-end players that would have a no trade. But at this point, it's it gives them a little protection that, hey, if if they don't want to, if they're comfortable in their situation, then there's nothing that they, it's going to be just out of the blue moved on that type of thing. So I think that that plays a little bit of factor. I think it's a good move in terms of, you know, you know, not having that constant movement. And I think a lot of times when you see younger players uh, moved around the league, a lot of times it's player-driven too. So it's something that, you know, they're maybe looking for a different opportunity. So it's hand in hand. The trades are, you know, it, a lot of people talk about it. They get the most attention. I don't think it's um, something that necessarily you have to do every year. I think it's something that you want to see what your team can do, what you can develop internally. I think that's any program that's had success in the OHL over the last few years. It's always a lot of homegrown talent through the draft. And I think there's always going to be trades. As I said, sometimes it's player driven. There might be different reasons, but I think it's it's a way of kind of, Keeping the transactions maybe at the same, but less players moving. And in terms of the GMs across the league, it's nice. You know, you got in there around 27. You're 31 now. It's nice to see some other young blood come through the ranks, like Mike McKenzie um, is the new Kitchener GM. He's, I believe, 31. Adam Dennis is an assistant GM with North Bay. He's 32. Uh, Joey Burke in Niagara, 30-ish. I'm not sure exactly how old he is. Um Dave Drinkill and in, in Sagada, he's in his mid thirties. Like it's nice that there's this new blood. Do you feel like, you know, with all this change, especially this off season, almost half the league, no joke, has has either tr- changed their GM or, or head coach. You think it's a good thing? Is it a bad thing? How are you viewing all this sort of uh, change in in sort of the off ice, front office, or behind the bench? I don't. I don't think it's a, change is ever a bad thing. I think it's something that can be a positive. I think there's always a side that stability is going to be a key point to any organization whenever you're going to see success. And I think if if guys are moving for the right reasons, I think it's, as I said, even in my personal experience, whenever you can kind of, when someone's stepping into a situation that, hey, they can't say no to, um, 
it usually sets it up a lot nicer for that that person coming into that spot. So I, I don't think change is ever a negative side of it. I think there's new people can bring in new ideas. There's always a learning curve on side on that side of it. But I think at the same time, I think it's just it's interesting when you see different perspectives of it, and it's not like any of those three gentlemen that you mentioned were all working with teams as assistant GMs and understanding it. They're not like they were strangers to the league right. by any means. So they understand their side of it. And it's, it's always interesting. It'll be interesting to see what they, they each do in those roles. And it's, uh, I think it's exciting whenever there's change. And like I said, especially when it's not just teams are cleaning house and, you know, things aren't going well. It's, it's good situations. Usually. So guys getting elevated as opposed to, uh, you know, it's a good story. It's not, it's not guy getting, you know, fired or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I think it's something that, you know, you don't want constant situations of these guys are on the hot seat here yeah. or that type of thing. And I think in junior, the, the cycle is so quick that you want to make sure that, you know, they have that supporting staff around them, especially when they're the age part. It, it's exciting because I think a lot of times when you, you look at certain programs, there were some guys there for a long time and there's some good side to that. And then there's some other side that, you know, it's good to bring in some new ideas as well. Another aspect to the whole changing of the guard is that these new young guys have grown up, or not grown up, but but been more exposed to maybe uh, the analytical side of the game. Uh, there's some teams that have director of analytics. Most teams, I think, in the OHL, at least half, have some sort of uh, stats guy, whether it's you know a volunteer, an intern, or or an actual you know staff member. Um, how have you seen that develop across the league? Because I know that you guys, uh, Matt Rodell, is that how you say his name? Yeah, correct. He, he works for, on the business side, um, selling tickets, and then also he helps out with your actual hockey analytics. Um, how has that experience been? And, and do you think uh, you're seeing uh, analytics really inch into to junior hockey more and more? Yeah, there, there's definitely, over the last couple of years, been a, a large... I'm not going to say investment on it in terms of junior hockey, but you just see a lot more personnel on that side of it. And I think um, us in the sewer last couple of years with Matt Rodell, we've had a, a couple different um, individuals work with us in terms of some have been in-house, some have been just helping out on the side. But it's something that, and I, I can't speak for everybody, but whenever you're trying to look at different things, um, in turn, whether it's a transaction cost of a trade or a draft pick or a free agent signing, you just want all the information you yeah. can have in front of you. So I think for someone like myself, I've played in the league, I've worked at the league office, I'm now in charge of you know all our player movement in the Sioux. It's something that why not have a look at this extra information because I can't be everywhere at once. Of course. And, you know, does it drive any one decision? I don't think 100% it drives it, but I think for, for us – the way we viewed it in terms of our style of play, in terms of our process of how we're playing, I think it's a massive factor. And I think it's something that when we're looking at our team early on in the year and sometimes guys are at NHL camps or you have younger players insulated, it's a good way for us to kind of understand where we're at in our process and what we need to improve on. Because the worst case scenario you could have is you come out of the gate playing really well, the underbelly knowing that you're not playing the way you should be playing. But sometimes you don't catch on to that quick enough and then it's too fast to correct. So for us, and I know our coaching staff's a big believer in it, and our players have bought into it as well. They don't see all the information, yeah. but at the same time, we understand when we're playing the right way or we got away with a, a game that we won that, you know what, if we continue playing like this, the odds are it's not going to, at some point, it's going to catch up with us. So for us, it's about, you know, tracking other teams throughout the league. We don't do a ton of analytics in terms of, the draft mm -hmm. just because to track minor midget hockey we just don't have the resources yeah. at that side of it and the Sioux we like to 
be as resourceful as we can um, and be as creative as we can. And we have a lot of great people that, as you said, kind of work dual roles to kind of help out on both sides just to kind of justify that cost for us. But it's been something that I think the the material and the information to get is invaluable. And I think it's something that it really blends well with, you know, our coaches, our on-ice development, our scouting staff on top of it too. So it's all of a blend and it's not something that you want to cut out by any means, but it's something that we've grown in every year and it's kind of an evolved process for us and it's something that I think a lot of teams use it Uh, I think you can kind of judge based on how they're playing if they're listening to that particular person I think a lot of teams scrambled to kind of put in an analytics person over the last couple years just to you know have the have some sort of voice or or at least public voice sometimes it's a view of looking progressive I don't know how much are are really putting a a large factor into it but I know if you speak to our coaches and, and myself we we definitely take that information seriously, especially when we're analyzing ourselves. Oh, the way I look at it, and this is very just big picture, like the more information, the better. Maybe some of the information is useless, white noise or whatever you want to call it. But if you don't, if you're not surrounding yourself with all the all the facets of what's going on on the ice, then I think you're you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. I think I think that and. In terms of I played in the league, so a lot of people think that you shouldn't really look at that information. But for me, even when you and I don't track our games individually myself, but even if you go through that paces of what you're looking for, and um, I think it trains your eye to to watch the game a little differently yeah. too. And you kind of look for things that I might not have looked at, you know, five six years ago. And I think for yeah, us, you have your own biases, right? Like if you sort of look the other way and maybe you know detach from from what you've always thought, then that's that's a good thing. Definitely. We all, we have our biases, especially as you get through the the years of now you've drafted that player, you think this is what they're going to project to. I think it's something that for us, we put a lot of emphasis on playing efficiently and and not necessarily, um, you know, to get into too much of what we actually track. It's something that we understand when we're playing at our best and when we're we're doing things correctly. And it's something that if if you're just watching a game, you know, quickly turn it on, maybe that's a turnover in front of our net and you know a puck coming out on a that was a failed exit on our part i think if you're really watching how we're trying to play you can understand where that breakdown was before it really happened and it helps with our coaching staff to kind of make those in-game adjustments as well the the issue the elephant in the room with junior hockey and analytics is just the resources the league and and the way that uh, the hockey world is structured you're never going to have the same information coming from the league um, as the nhl and you're never going to have the same resources at a team level so it's sort of you got to balance like, like you're doing with rodell he has his presumably his full-time job is tickets and then on the side he's he's really helping you guys out in hockey ops by by doing what he does um in terms of how you guys uh view view the whole situation though is it sort of is he in on any any conversations or does he just file reports? I'm just curious. Like, is is he very involved? Is he sort of involved? Yeah, that, he's he's more so involved kind of on the coaching side of things okay. because he actually um, does a lot of our in game tracking. A lot of um, he works with three other guys. So we ha- over the last couple of years we've had different guys kind of helping out in terms of our program and more so manual tracking. Um, but with him. You know, with Matt, he's one of those situations where at the start of the year, actually next week, we're going to have our meeting. But we meet with the coaching staff. We meet kind of with some of the scouting staff of understanding what we need. Because we don't want, as you mentioned, the resources are what they are. And you don't want to just having guys have busy 
projects. You want yeah. stuff that we're going to have value in and what we see kind of can be useful for our group. So what we'll do is kind of understand what we need to know, what we're, what we're going to be major focuses on top of what we did previous years. So that way it's kind of evolving to, okay, maybe let's, let's have a look at this side of it. And I think for us, that's what we've done over the last couple of years and it's been successful. Cause I think every year you don't want to just come back and do the same thing just because that's what you did last year. You don't want to be stagnant with it. So you want to make sure you're stressing or you're stretching each resource as far as you can, but at the same time you want it to be useful. So to get back to your question, I think, with Matt, he's continually putting out reports. We always have kind of small projects that we call it that we might be viewing something in a different light. And, you know, the coaches have that in their hand, you know, roughly kind of we try and aim between 90 minutes after a game, not to mention they get reports in between each period if necessary. Interesting. And then, like, you, you also, as a GM, have a hand in the business side. I don't know if a lot of people know that. Every OHL front office is different. Some GMs right. are just strictly GMs with hockey ops. Some have a lot of influence on the business side. Some have a little. Some don't have assistant GMs. Some have two or one. Right. Um, how have you found that being sort of uh, also uh, with your hands in, in the business and sort of seeing um, that side of, of the hockey world? Yeah, I think it, it comes back to without an assistant GM and kind of being blended between business and, and the hockey ops, it's kind of... It's great in a sense that no two days are the same, but at the same time, sometimes you're kind of having to prioritize in certain times of the year. And obviously, hockey's where my passion is. Um, I, we have a good business staff up in the Sioux that, that does a great job for us. So it's more so to facilitate with them when necessary and, and kind of assist when I, when I can. And, you know, throughout the summer, the business side of it kind of takes over a little bit more. And then obviously when the hockey season's going on, that's kind of more my focus, but yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It's been, it's great in the sense that you're really, you're forced to develop your skills on both sides just because there's not really anyone you can kind of delegate to on that side of it. But no, it's been uh, it's a fun group that we get to work with up there. And at the same time, you get to get to learn a lot very quickly. How have you found dealing with the import draft? Because that's a tricky draft for, for any GM, and you know you got you guys drafted two guys this summer Rasmus Sandin I don't know if I'm saying it right a Swedish defenseman and then uh, another Rasmus Rasmus Kupari a Finnish forward how how is that process going in terms of bringing them over and uh, what do you think about the the import draft in general because it works for some teams some years other years it doesn't some teams always get players to come over. Uh, some teams never get players like it's sort of a it's sort of all over the place yeah I, I think it's at times it can be a frustrating process I think with us picking where we were in the 50s and then the 120s um, there's not necessarily always 120 good import players yeah. in, in the CHL every year so sometimes you kind of have to look at it a little creatively I think with our group we have returning this year it was kind of a aside that we viewed the import draft is we needed guys that were going to come over and make an impact. We weren't necessarily worried about just having a body to be on the team because of the group that we're luckily returning. So I think for us, it was more so shooting for, you know, higher end players and hopes that, you know, we can kind of persuade them for, to coming over. And I think for our group and both these players are playing at the Ivan Alinka tournament, having great tournaments. So it's great for their profile. Um, it's a work in progress in terms of, you know, adding them to our roster. We're hoping to kind of circle back with their groups here after the, the tournament. And we'll see. It's it's something that um, it can be a frustrating process because, hey, your team can really take a step with adding two players of that caliber. But, you know, the risk is obviously if you don't get those players, then those are little bits of holes that you need to fill elsewhere. 
and they're young. They're they're 2000 born players, so they're eligible for 2018. And also, I don't know about percentages, but I'd say the majority of import draft draftees probably don't have good English. Uh, they're they're from Europe, haven't for the most part been exposed to North America. So there's that sort of unknown. Uh, you have to convince parents to have their kid come over and be in a completely new country. Obviously, the agent plays a huge role in this in terms of being the middleman and and you know maybe he has to talk to the parents and, and convince them or like there's this whole sort of different element because right. there's unknown there's unknown for them unknown for you so i find it very intriguing uh when some guys come over it works out great some guys come over and they don't even make the team or it just doesn't work out in training camp like there's there's such extreme ways this can go yeah it's it's a tough process for both these players are 17 for instance it's tough for any 17 year old whether their hometown is a Sioux and they're trying to make the, the Greyhounds in, in training camp or you're coming halfway across the world. So it's a major, major adjustment. Um, it's tough to really get that comfort level with the families too too early. So as you mentioned, a lot of it goes through the agents uh, in terms of speaking on their behalf of what type of program just selected them or what they potentially could be going to. So yeah, it's a, it's a tough process. Like I said, when you kind of can end up with a player that really helps your team. You're a big fan of it, and I think it, it works out well. But it, yeah. at sometimes it's it's tough. A lot of it's you know, you know, when you're drafting older players, sometimes it has a lot of relevance on the NHL draft and what happens there and whether they want to come over to North. I've had players that have been passed over or thought they should have gone higher in the NHL draft, and it's worked out in our favor because they believe the the lights will be brighter for them in the CHL, and they've come over. And then you've had other players that want to wait a year and come yeah. over the year after. So it's it's no different than a Canadian or an American player. They all kind of have their own different situation and what they're looking for. And you kind of hope that your program speaks for itself and you're able to kind of add, acquire that talent and add it to your roster and help to build that team. So as a last question, you're entering the 2017-18 season. What are your expectations for the Sioux Greyhounds? I think for us, it's, you know, we have big expectations on our, our team just based on who we have returning. I think it's something that it, it's tough to really put a an exact date of what our expectations are yeah. because I like to hazard it, my thought process on that until usually around that American Thanksgiving because I find a lot of times when you're it's it's a it's a great sign, but it's also a tough sign when you have a lot of you know high NHL picks because a lot of times they're going to get good looks at their yeah. NHL camps. You're kind of waiting on pins and needles. Who are you getting back? When are they coming back? And what's this team even look like? Because it's one thing to acquire talent, but it's another thing to to build a team. And sometimes you don't even know what that team's going to look like because, as we mentioned earlier, you know a, a player that's 17 or 18 or 16 years old, three months in a summer can be massive for them or they can kind of you know find out other things that maybe they're it's more important to them so it's something that we try and put a a massive amount of focus in acquiring players that have that little motor inside of them that they're going to push for that spot next year and they're not they're going to turn that no into a yes and they're going to be you know undeniable when they come to camp so i think those are kind of not to say buzzwords but those are words that we look at for a, a major attribute so when we're kind of looking at the group this year, we're, we're excited about it. But at the same time, you want to make sure that we're not just assuming guys are going to get to that part. We're still going to kind of build out those individual uh, development models for each player. And I think when you kind of invest that in early in the year in players, it just makes the group that much better down the road. Because I think when you can kind of 
you can't train them as a group, even as our coaching staff when we've discussed it. You can have players and groups that you're training with and developing early in the year, but you can't just assume every player needs to get to that side of it because that was always my biggest, I guess, uh, you know, something that always would bother me when you'd have an end of the year meeting and someone would say, you got to get bigger, faster, stronger. Like, like uh, as a player? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As a player, because it doesn't really, you know, necessarily hit home for anything. Yeah. So you try and be as articulate for what you see that player. But at the same time, with this generation of athletes, they want input on it too. Right. And you want to get picked from their brain of, hey, maybe they've already signed that NHL contract, but how are we going to develop you this year that maybe shorten that time in the American League or whatever that goal is going to be for them. You want that their buy-in too. So I think early in the year, when you whenever you watch our team, a lot of it's individually based because you want to make sure that you're maximizing each individual's potential. And I think it usually pays off towards the end of the year and you can usually take off second half, but it also helps blend that time before you're waiting on players to come into it. So I think not to, to evade your question. Well, um, it's fair though, because with an NHL team, they have all these guys under contract. And, you know, everyone in media fans debate, you know, for days how, how they're going to be slotted. And, I mean, there's usually not a huge variance. It's like, these are the good teams. These are the bad teams. Right. And this is probably what's going to happen. But with you guys, your roster is, is so in flux, especially in the first month or two, that you don't really have a handle on even who's going to be around, let alone how they're going to play. So I get where you're coming from, where there's a lot of uncertainty, especially compared to a pro team where... The, con- the the roster is more concrete. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's something that you want to look towards the end of the year for that. But at the same time, you want to be, let's let's deal with the group we have, which can be you know, a frustrating side for the coaching staff because they're unsure of you know trying to get some chemistry with it. But as we always kind of joke a little bit, by the end of the year, the, the good teams seem to have the good chemistry and the teams that struggle <laughs> have the bad chemistry. So yep. sometimes that's a little bit overrated on that side of it. But no, I think we're really excited about our group. I think we return a, a good group that's been together and understand what it is to get into some deeper runs in the playoffs, playing some tough minutes. And I think there's there's a group there with some unfinished business for themselves too, and they want to see it kind of take off, take it to the next step. But as we kind of talked about it, you got to get through that training camp. It's a little bit of a hurry up and wait to get through that side of it and understand really what you have. And you can't really count that until you, you see it in the SR Center there in the suit. All right. Thanks, Kyle. I appreciate you coming in. No, anytime. Thanks, Sean. I'm going to uh, create your uh, IMDb page now. (laughs) I appreciate that.